Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbun. I'm coming to you from Macquarie University. I'm here with Daniel Reiche, who's the author of Success and Failure of Countries at the Olympic Games, which is published by Rutledge. And uh, thank you for joining us, Daniel. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to your lovely program, Keith. I want to start out by telling you I really uh, enjoyed reading this book. It's so punchy. Uh, it summarizes so much of, I think, the kind of questions a lot of our listeners have uh, about the Olympics and, and why we see countries investing in programs, uh, sports uh, that maybe don't seem to make sense for us. Uh, but before we start to talk in depth about your book, I, I wanted to know a little bit more about you, how you got into studying sports and, and how you came up with this project in particular. Yes, I think there are two main reasons. <clears throat> One of them is that I grew up in Germany, in West Germany, and uh, sporting competition between East and West Germany was always a big issue. And actually, since I grew up in West Germany, uh, I have to admit that the East Germans outperformed us West Germans uh, at the Olympic Games. Um, in football, it was different, but maybe we talk about it at a later point. Uh, secondly, I've been all my life a big supporter of my local uh, football club, Hanover 96. And after I completed all my degrees and had been a visiting assistant professor at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. and returned back to my birth and home city, Hanover, I decided to write a popular book on Hanover 96. This was in 2007, and it was published in 2008. It was great. Uh, the club also promoted it. There was a press conference with the club president and the player legend and a former mayor of the city. And I enjoyed the entire process of this book, which was not academic, so much that I decided I would like to also include sports into my academic life. And so you, you, you decided to start with the Olympics. How did you get, how did you get um, from Hanover 96 to, <laughs> to studying studying the Olympics? Because I think uh, most people would, would say there's a big jump between the kind of local club uh, close-in work, and then when they read this book, they'll think, wow, the, the scope of this book is just immense. Yeah, but so. um, I started uh, working on a sport academically in 2008, and the book uh, came out uh, came out in 2016. So there was a process in between. So uh, what I did at the beginning, I started to design uh, a class on sports policy and politics, which I started to teach. And I worked on first publications, uh, 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 academic uh, uh, journal articles. And the very first one I wrote was on the role of politics in Lebanese sports, because in 2008, I started to work as an assistant professor for comparative politics at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. I started in fall 2008. 
And I noticed that when I visited stadiums uh, or arenas in Lebanon that, uh, that there was like, politics was very visible. Like there were like posters of politicians in the arena or teams would play in, uh, uh, their shirts would have the color of certain parties which were supporting them. So it was obvious that in Lebanon, sports and politics uh, are not as separated spheres. So this is how it all started. And I uh, published different topics in the field of sport policy and politics. And ultimately, uh, then the book on uh, success and failure of countries at the Olympic Games. In some ways, when I was when I was reading the book, um, I felt like it was a in, it, at times kind of a white paper. Like I want to take your book and I want to send it to the U.S. Olympic Committee. I mean. Yeah. I'm a bit of a, a USA homer when it comes to the Olympics, guilty. Um, but is, is that who you were writing for? Uh, who who do you see the audience of for the book? Because I, I think there may be a lot of different audiences for it. And one audience must be the organizers of the, of the national committees. Yes, I think, uh, well, first of all, it's an academic book and it's uh, for scholars being interested in sporting success. But I think, uh, yes, the book is also interesting for policymakers, uh, for, you know, people who work in ministries of sport or in national Olympic committees, in national, international federations, and who want to know, uh, the factors, um, that led to sporting success of leading countries. So the beginning of the book starts out with that question of what does it mean to be successful um, at the games? And, and I think that uh, there's a kind of interesting through line in your book, uh, and, and at times it, it comes out, uh, but it especially comes out in your conclusion, and I hope we, we can... We can talk about this as we discuss uh, this today, which is that success means different things for a lot of people. So um, how did you define success in, in the book? What, it, what are most Olympic committees around the world looking for? How do they define success? And is there any kind of, uh, any kind of problems with how they define it? Yeah, I mean, short answer, it's all about medals. <clears throat> but if we look more into details, um, there are different type of medal rankings. So, for example, in the U.S., it's more popular to look at the total number of medals won, while in most other parts of the world, rankings are published in the media that would um, look at gold medals first. So if one country wins one gold medal, but zero bronze and silver medal, and another country wins zero gold medal, but many uh, silver and bronze medals, the country with the one gold medal would be, would be still ranked better than the other country. So this uh, gold uh, 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 medal's first approach is the most common medal ranking in the world. Uh, the New York Times has introduced a point system where it would give more points to a gold than to a silver and bronze medal. That's also interesting. Uh, some uh, uh, colleagues have introduced rankings that would publish uh, medals per capita or medals uh, by GDP. And uh, so there are a number of suggestions for alternative uh, 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 medal rankings. For example, my uh, colleague uh, Nadim Nassif from Notre Dame University has introduced uh, a world elite sport ranking where he takes into consideration the popularity of sports, which I think 
is a very innovative um, approach because uh, we rank a medal in a sport that are only practiced by a few thousand people in the world the same as a medal in a team sport that is played by millions of people. And this is kind of weird. Uh, it's very weird, but uh, sometimes it's kind of fun too. I, although I always joke, I always joke with friends that in a team sport, everybody on the team should get their own gold medal. So, you know, basketball yes. should be 18 gold medals. <laughs> but No, but so, this is a good point, Keith, because uh, uh, at the Olympic Games, uh, we have cases that an individual athlete like Michael Phelps can, can win up to eight medals in one single Olympic Games. And then we have an entire soccer team which can only win one medal. So there's an imbalance. It's true. It's true. So the, the predominant way, though, of, of, of assessing Olympic success, it, it seems to be, and, and you make a very persuasive case in, in um, your book that, that many Olympic committees consider this the, the, the most common way, is just medals, and especially gold medals. Yes. Right. And, and that leads them to... to kind of set targets for themselves because if they're going to invest money, um, they're going to, they're going to want to see certain targets. So are, is this a common feature within the games? Are a lot of Olympic committees setting, setting targets? Yes. How are, how are, how are different countries defining their success? I mean, most uh, developed countries uh, would define uh, aims such as we want to end up in the top three, in the top five, in the top ten of the medal ranking. Uh, very few countries have uh, aims that are um, uh, broader, such as uh, maybe winning specific medals. Um, like Brazil said before the 2016 Summer Olympic Games, we want to win the gold medal in soccer because that's our national sport. Um, as a German, I, uh, I'm hesitant to mention that they succeeded to do so by winning the final against Germany. And uh, <laughs> some other countries, uh, like Kenya, for example, they win most of their medals in running. They said we want to be more successful in other sports as well. So Few countries do this, but most countries just look at their rank in the medal ranking or the total number of medals won. Uh, although uh, there should be other aims, such as being represented by a similar number of men and women, being represented in a certain number of sports, uh, being successful not only in one or two sports, uh, but these goals are uh, not common. Most countries focus on very few sports. I did think it was very interesting when reading your 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 third chapter on how national Olympic committees and, and nations themselves define their sports um, targets. To think about the difference between the sports superpowers and um, what might we might think of as the sports minnows, where some countries are defining their goals as just being represented in more sports. Let's try to let's try to compete more broadly. Um, you know, we're not we shouldn't just be here to wave a flag at the opening ceremony. I, I want to see our athletes, and then of course other countries, um, you know, the United States, uh, China, Russia, consider themselves to be sports superpowers and almost think they should be competing in in every sport. And then of course there's there's as you say some countries that 
take certain sports to be their domains. The Australians, of course, I work down here in Australia, so um, are, are much in love with their swimming. And when they don't do well in the pool, that's a national catastrophe. Yes. So it was interesting thinking about all this um, in, in, in your work because even though they might have these different goals, we still see a lot of investment, right? And so then in your next chapter, you start to address the question of why countries even compete. And are they competing for the same reasons? Why do countries compete in the Olympics in the first place? Yes. So, I mean, a, a weakness of uh, the um uh, academic literature, but also on like uh, media reporting on the matter, uh, is that they focus on those countries that uh, win medals. But uh, these countries are the minority. For example, at the 2016 Summer Olympic Games, there were 205 National Olympic Committees participating, but only 86 of them were able to win a medal, which is 50, uh, 42%. So 58% of participating National Olympic Committees did not win a medal. Uh, we have even uh, worse data for the Winter Olympics. We had in 2018 in Pyongyang 92 National Olympic Committees participating. Only 30 of them, which is 33%, were able to, to win a medal. So I think, and this is what I also tried to do, in the book, to be more inclusive uh, and look also at those countries that do not win medals, because most studies, they would look at best practice cases. They would look at uh, 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 the country where you are living, Keith, at Australia. They would look at Norway. They would look at UK, at US. But uh, other countries, uh, such as Lebanon, for example, where I live and work, uh, are, are mainly ignored in the academic literature. So it's also interesting to look at uh, the motives of these countries. And I think um, there is like, a, you know, a two-way directional process, like from the point of view of countries such as Lebanon, they want to participate in the Olympic Games as a sign of statehood, like having a national anthem, like having an own currency. They want to raise their flag at the Olympic Games. And from the perspective of uh, the organizing committee from the International Olympic Committee, they want to to uh, uh, give their events a label that it's global, that all are included. So they put a lot of effort into including countries such as Lebanon uh, by inviting also athletes uh, that have not qualified to the Olympics to to make it a universal global event. So it seems to to me, uh, and I, I actually I wanted to commend you in in your work for consistently in every chapter kind of pressing on this on this desire to win medals and actually kind of critiquing it even as you're explaining how you do it <laughs> always saying maybe we should reconsider whether this is the way we think about olympic success but if you want to succeed here's how you can do it um, <laughs> um i i, I did i, mean, of I did course, Keith, uh, i think we are all shaped by our environment so of course uh, i since I work in a developing country, uh, I, it was very important to me to also include uh, the perspective from countries such as, as Lebanon, but at the same time not losing the focus and answer the question, uh, what does it need uh, to be successful in the Olympics? Yeah, I, I, I thought that was an, excel an excellent uh, through line throughout the book. And, and this 
this um, this emphasis that you have in the fourth chapter, which I thought was one of the most interesting chapters in the book in some ways, in the ways in which nationalism, sovereignty um, are, are working and how they work through different sports and how they work in, in, in single ethnic versus multi-ethnic states and how that helps to shape what success can even mean for these countries, um, I think is really, is really interesting, uh, an interesting uh, forward in some ways to discussions for a, if later in your work, how you actually go about winning medals. Because the beginning of your book sets, sets the question, what does success even mean? Um, and then the latter half of your book, I think, effectively illustrates, okay, if we agree success means medals, which you don't necessarily even seem to agree with at a, a lot of times, here's how you might go about it. So I was, yes. really, I was really fascinated by that chapter in particular. But the, most, the majority of your book, in some ways, uh, is, is an explanation of how to go about winning medals. What are the best, what are the best ways to be successful? If we uh, accept the premise that winning medals is what we want to do, how do we do it? And the first few chapters of that part of the book, you're taking on the literature on the field and kind of explaining it or taking it apart. Um, so the first argument that a lot of people make, and, and I've made this argument myself, so maybe I, I'm, I'm guilty in some ways, is that, you know, winning medals is just all about who has the money to pay for training, right? It's just a, a, a quick GDP to medal conversion. That's I think many people think that, but you take on that idea and explain the complexities of it. So is, is it just money is equal equals metals? Is that how we should think about things? Yeah. I mean, it's part of the explanation, but uh, I mean, to, to, to have a general introduction to the answer of this question, uh, research has changed and we have kind of two generations of researchers on, on sporting success. And the first generation uh, did mainly look at, uh, at general characteristics, at macro variables such as uh, GDP, population size, geography. Uh, now uh, we have, uh, and I'm part of a second generation of researchers of, on uh, a sporting success, which looks more to the policy level. This does not mean that it's totally wrong to look at um, the uh, macro variables and to look at uh, the wealth of a country, for example, um, uh, or population size or geography. But overall, these factors just matter for uh, specific sports. But if we look at the entire Olympic Games, uh, we cannot explain success and failure without including the policy perspective. So, for example, if we look at sailing, Yes, all the countries who are successful in sailing, they have access to the sea, so geography, and they have money, so wealth. Um, so yes, this is a sport where uh, we can explain success with, um, uh, with wealth and with geography, although we still need to explain why some wealthy countries with access to the sea are successful and others who have the same characteristics are not. Then we have sports where uh, wealth doesn't matter at all. For example, in running. Running is a sport for everybody. So we have uh, East African countries uh, succeeding uh, in running. 
And uh, we have uh, uh, then equestrian, for example, where, again, Wales is very important. And then we have uh, team sports uh, such as uh, soccer, where uh, the Brazilians are doing a pretty good job, for example. So uh, we need to look, uh, uh, we need to see at it sport by sport. Uh, but overall, uh, the policy level has become more important to explain success and failure of countries uh, than the general characteristics. Well, I would before we jump into the policy level, I, I would like to ask a couple more of the kind of macro, macro factor levels. One yes. thing that I had, had heard before, and I think you do a good job of of um, delving into, and it riffs off a person who I spoke to in this program a, a few months ago, is the role of ideology. What role does ideology play, and, and how are you defining this? What role does ideology play in, in the success or failure of countries at the Games? It played a major role uh, until the Cold War ended in 1990. East Germany uh, only participated between 1968 and 1988 in six summer and five winter Olympic Games, and it's still in the top 10 of the all-time Olympic medal ranking. Uh, with a population of only 60 million people. So the East Germans uh, were the first that um, introduced policies that would first been criticized by the West, but later adopted by them. So in 1968, at the Winter Olympics, the East German ice hockey team became last in the Olympic competition. And the uh, East uh, German government said uh, it's useless to invest in a sport where we cannot win a medal like uh, ice hockey, uh, as it should rather compete in individual events. So they uh, reduced the East German Ice Hockey League to only two clubs after the 1968 Olympics. So until the end of uh, the GDR, uh, the East German Ice Hockey Championship was just played between two clubs. Um, and no other clubs got funding anymore. So because the government wanted to, uh, its assets to uh, 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 compete in individual sports. So and uh, uh, East Germany classified uh, sports into two groups, and those sports that deserve funding because they are likely to achieve success on the international level, and into sports that do not deserve funding because they are not likely to uh, uh, have uh, success at the international level, like ice hockey, uh, or on individual sports, table tennis. Uh, uh, Germany is today doing very well in table tennis, but there's still a West-East gap because this is a legacy of uh, uh, the GDR. Because uh, in the GDR, there were no investments into uh, table tennis infrastructure. So um, the East Germans were the first, and other Eastern Bloc countries uh, 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 also adopted this approach. And today, all countries are doing it, that they differentiate between uh, more medal promising sports and those that are not likely to deliver gold, silver, or bronze. So, I think it's fair to say the the major punch of your book is the latter chapters where you um, delve into the policy level, and I'd like to spend the majority of our time talking about this. You come up with your own. Uh, formula, as you as you call it, the wise formula. What's the wise formula? Yeah, the wise formula is addressing the policy level, and the four letters stand for uh, the promotion of uh, women's sport, 
the institutionalization of uh, the support of Olympic sports, then the strategic specialization of many promising sports and the ability to early adopt new trends in elite sport policies and be a pioneer in promoting sports newly added to the Olympic program. So um, I thought we just, is there a preferred order you'd like to talk about them or just talk about them <laughs> in the order of whys? I, I mean, I, 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 I would guess you put them in that order because it wise. It just sounds like a good acronym. <laughs> yes, uh, but that is true. And I was uh, after I came up with this, I was uh, nervous uh, whether anybody else came up with uh, an acronym uh, uh, in academia. But I didn't find anything on the web, so I was thinking it sounds uh, nice. Yeah, I think it, I mean it's 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 wisdom. You're you're handing out wisdom here to the Olympic uh, committees. But but I think, but I think, uh, um, of course, um, uh, the uh, specialization on medal promising sports is maybe the key. Uh, 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 without uh, specializing uh, on uh, medal promising sports, it seems to be impossible uh, to be uh, successful in the Olympic Games. So, so. Explain a little bit, and, and actually maybe this is a good segue anyway since we were just talking about the DDR, um, but explain a little bit what specialization means and, and why countries should, how they, how they can do it and why they should do it. Yeah, I mean, so if we, if we look at the Olympic medal ranking and uh, apart from the United States of America, which is doing very well in many sports, I think there's just one sport uh, where they didn't win a, a gold medal, which is biathlon. But um, most other sports win most of their medals in just very few sports. Um, and uh, and uh, most sports are dominated by, by few countries. So although the Olympic Games seem to be a global universal event, at the end, it's the games of the few in many sports. For example, if we look into the case of Luge, uh, this is a sport dominated by mo my home country, Germany, which won, uh, German athletes won more than half of all luge medals in the history of the Winter Games. Uh, don't think this is a popular sport in Germany. There are around 6,000 athletes in 100 clubs. So this is even a niche sport in, 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 in Germany, and there are not many tracks uh, globally. So... Um, uh, and there are many sports which are uh, dominated... Um, um, by, by one or two countries. And when uh, a country enters the Olympic uh, arena, I mean, um, there, I mean, there are two, 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 two ways of dominating a sport. One is that there is like, um, an historic path that the country has been always successful in that sport, like Germany and Luge. Or, uh, when a sport is relatively new to the Olympic program, then, of course, a country can put resources into the promotion of the sport to become a superpower in that sport. And uh, there are two examples which uh, show very well uh, how countries can make the strategic choice of um, investing into a sport. One is women weightlifting, which became in 2000 an Olympic sport when the Olympic Games were hosted in, by Sydney in Australia. And China uh, strategically invested into women weightlifting, starts women uh, of early age to be, which have favorable um, uh, physical characteristics, uh, starts to promote them. 
uh, puts them in specific schools where they are trained all day. And so China became the dominant um, woman weightlifting country. And we see the same with, with uh, South Korea, which dominates the short track competition, the Olympics. It has been very smart not to put much resources into speed skating because this is there's an historic dominance by the Netherlands and it's very difficult to break into this. So they started to strategically focus on short track, which is an Olympic sport since 1992, I believe. And uh, this sport is dominated by South Korea. So we have either historic explanations or we have uh, strategic recent choices by countries when uh, uh, sports were added to the Olympic programs. Is In all the cases, no coincidence uh, uh, um, and uh, the result of policies uh, 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 when we look at the dominance of countries in these sports. And, and you even make the point that countries can't just rest on their laurels. I mean, maybe they have a historic relevance, but they still need to be engaging in performance-based funding models, right? That yes. it's not enough just to to invest the first time. You have to you have to make sure that that you're in continually investing in things that have success. So, what's performance based funding, and how where did where did this come from? Yeah, that's a good point, Keith. I mean, uh, most countries have over time developed policies that would give more resources to sports that deliver uh, medals than to other sports. And what makes this controversial is that this approach does not take into consideration the popularity of the sport, how many uh, people do such a sport in a country. I mean, I just mentioned that there are only around 6,000 people being in Luge clubs in Germany. Um, there are uh, uh, more than half a million table tennis players, for example, in Germany, or 700,000 handball players. So... Um, one could argue that these sports deserve uh, much more funding because they are much more popular. And the UK has uh, a very radical uh, no-compromise approach. So uh, those sports that don't promise medals like basketball don't get uh, a funding for elite sport, although they are very popular in the population. Uh, so here we see that uh, uh, there are um, strategic decisions by uh, policymakers uh, and uh, which sports get funding and which not. And, and it seems like um, for most countries, this is a, just an absolute essential. I, the United States might continue. It, it seemed like the United States kept coming up as an outlier again and again. Uh, but countries like India, which doesn't specialize in Olympic sports, but maybe specialize in other sports, or Sweden, a country that had a kind of, as you explained it, a more egalitarian model, they're just falling by the wayside, even though yes. India population-wise should be more successful. Or Sweden, they have such a high GDP, but um, you know per capita, but they are completely um, fall, you know, falling behind their peers, right? Yes, uh, that's true. Uh, uh, Sweden is a very good example, uh, but uh, also uh, Finland. Um, so they have been a very successful. Uh, in the Olympic Games in the first part of the 20th century, but then they missed to follow the trend of uh, specialization, and specialization in medal-promising sports. Uh, they have more egalitarian approaches in society. They want to treat sports equally, which, uh, uh, I mean, they are good arguments to do so, but... Uh, 
uh, now, uh, if it comes to elite sports success, they are now behind other countries. Yeah, I, I, I also one of the things I found interesting in this in this chapter in particular on specialization was that it's an essential strategy if you want to if you want to be successful at the Olympics, you need to specialize. You have limited resources, but it's also risky, right? Because the IOC can go ahead and get rid of sports that they don't want to have as part of their program of the Olympics. And if you've specialized in them, either uh, as a strategic move or because of some historical linkages, all of a sudden they're gone. Maybe you don't have a have much of an Olympic uh, capacity anymore, like Iran with wrestling. Yeah, that's an excellent argument. I mean, if countries are too narrow, if they just focus on one or two sports, they are very vulnerable if these sports are uh, expelled from the Olympic Games. Uh, and, uh, I mean, there are some sports like like uh, field hockey or handball where I would not bet on their Olympic future because um, they are failing to globalize. You know, handball, I'm myself a big handball fan. It's a beautiful sport, but it's mainly a European sport. And just recently at the Handball World Cup, we had again the last four teams in the tournament were all from Europe. Um, and in, in field hockey, uh, uh, although it's globally a little bit more spread than handball with countries such as uh, India doing well, um, it's also uh, failing to become uh, popular. And uh, uh, now we uh, rugby was rugby sevens was uh, admitted to the Olympic program starting in 2016. So there is nothing stable. There's always uh, a fluctuation of like sports being expelled and others added to the program. So uh, uh, if countries are too narrow, um, uh, it might hurt them in the long term. That, that brings up your E in some ways, that this early learning, because as we see this fluctuation, that provides opportunities for countries, right? How can countries take yes. advantage of early learning to, to advance their medal uh, objectives? Yeah, I mean, smart countries uh, would like immediately start promoting uh, sport after it was admitted to the uh, Olympic program. Uh, we have seen that uh, rugby sevens has been added to the uh, PE curriculum in, in, in some countries. And um, I uh, gave the uh, uh, example of women weightlifting in, in China, where China dominates the competitions. So, uh, yes, countries need to be uh, very, very quick. Uh, and um, when sports are newly added to the Olympic programs, because usually uh, uh, this happens uh, like uh, uh, just a couple of years uh, before the Games. So, and of course, those countries where these sports were already popular have an advantage. Um, but if one acts uh, quick, one has an advantage compared with other countries that are slower in their decision-making processes. It, it was funny. I was reading your book watching. Uh, there's a big Rugby Sevens tournament going on here in Sydney right now. I, I just ended today, actually. I, although I don't know who won, so I, I, I won't spoil it for anyone. Um, but I was watching uh, the women's Rugby Sevens, and Russia was competing, and I was so surprised. I was like, I didn't know they played much rugby in Russia, let alone women's rugby. And then I read in your book that 
you know, Russia early was trying to early adopt rugby sevens in order to be more successful. And they seemed quite competitive, I, I must admit. You know, Keith, it's really funny when, when, uh, when uh, the Soviets hosted the uh, Moscow Olympics in 1980, which unfortunately was boycotted by the United States and some other countries. Um, it was the only time that the Soviets won a, a field uh, hockey medal. This was a sport not popular, but uh, since they knew they would host the game, they put for a certain period of time a lot of resources into field hockey and they showed how well they are able to uh, properly plan success. Uh, but unfortunately, it lasted not long, so they never won again a field hockey medal. And now it's the same happening with, 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 with rugby sevens, which uh, became part of a PE curriculum. In, in Russia, so uh, Russia is still benefiting uh, from the tradition of uh, planning from Soviet times, and they are still doing very well in sports. Although some medals um, uh, were won uh, by doping, as we know now. There, there. That I, I was going to ask about that later, but since you bring it up, um, I wanted to. I guess I wanted to ask you. Uh, about doping and, and what role you see doping is playing. You don't have doping as one of your chapters, but certainly the DDR is one of your uh, key examples of a, of a state that practices specialization, institutionalization, early learning, but also doping. So what, what role does doping play in winning medals? And if you can get away with it, should, should, that be a part of people's strategy? I mean, we can't suggest that, but I'm, I'm thinking in my head, what role is that playing? Well, at the last Olympics, I remember one German daily newspaper that I like to read. They published every day the medal ranking, and below the medal ranking they wrote, we cannot guarantee for this ranking until <laughs> 10 years from now because <laughs> this is a period of time that uh, medals can be uh, stripped away. And I mean, this is what is happening now. We have now all the time in the news that uh, 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 um, the rankings from, from, from London 2012 are still changed because of doping. So, of course, this is uh, uh, for uh, researchers <laughs> a disaster when we... When we want to look at reliable data, and then this is changing. So um, yes, but but doping shows. Um, uh, I mean, it it uh, as you uh, rightfully say, it's not a major topic in my book, but uh, of course it needs to be discussed in the context of sporting success because here we can see how far some countries go to achieve success, and today we know that there was a very strategic state doping in the GDR. Uh, there are uh, state-recognized doping victims which get now uh, a state pension because uh, they have uh, so severe uh, physical damages from the doping that they get a state pension now in Germany. And uh, so this is uh, sad, you know. And there is a story of uh, uh, the Montreal Summer Olympic Games when the East German swimming coach was asked why do your female swimmers have so deep voices? And he said, they are not here for singing, they are here for swimming. That's sad. Yeah, 
I mean, but that's the that's the extreme case of institutionalization, right? But that doesn't yes. that isn't when you when you are arguing uh, your eye is institutionalization. When you argue for institutionalization, I I don't think that's what you mean. What do you mean when you say country no, but, should institutionalize? Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, at the end, uh, you are right. It's an extreme, uh, uh, <laughs> it's an extreme uh, approach of institutionalization to have like a top down doping processes. And it seems that many athletes, young athletes in the GDR didn't even know that they, uh, what they would do. Um, because it was like a centralized approach where like at practice sessions, all athletes would have to take certain things. Um, but no, when I talk about institutionalization, I have more in mind uh, institutions such as the Australian Institute uh, of Sport or Olympia Toppen in, in Norway, which strategic, strategically organize the elite sport uh, sector, uh, develop uh, policies on basically anything, uh, a, a, a practice, a coaching, um, uh, uh, training, uh, competitions, uh, domestically and internationally. And yeah, countries that have institutions that um, uh, plan uh, the uh, elite sport sector uh, usually do much better than countries that do not have such institutions. Yeah, I, I, I'm, it, it almost seems like a, a truism, but when you think about it, this isn't really the the image we have of sport, right? Um, we think of it as these these great athletes driven by their own passion who, uh, you know, who compete. That's the that's the that's the story that we get. Or maybe well, you're not watching NBC, um, but that's the story of, of the Olympic Games, and we don't yes. often think about the the ways in which the national committees themselves make very strategic decisions about how they're going to invest their money, how they're going to institutionalize training. And, and I hadn't really understood this myself um, as, a, as a scholar until I spent a lot of time uh, doing research at the ANSEP in, in France. And you see the, the, the cafeteria that all the elite athletes are eating in. You see them at training sessions all day, and they're just living there on this campus <laughs> practically. Yes. And and you think, oh, okay, wait a minute, you know, this is this is what elite sport outside of professional sport really looks like in a lot of places, but not every place. Are there are there some countries that that uh, haven't institutionalized, and as a consequence, they uh, have are are seeing a lack of success. Um, yes, I mean, uh, one outlier is the U.S., but they are uh, uh, not in terms of, of failure. I mean, uh, they, uh, different to other countries, they don't have a ministry for sports. They don't have a national a sport institution. They have given all the power to the National Olympic Committee, uh, which uh, is enjoying uh, privileges such, such as that they, don't have, that they are not taxed um, and... Um, so and and most of the promotion of uh, elite sport is happening in schools and uh, universities uh, in the United States. So the the U.S. is 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 different from um, uh, the rest of the world, and um, uh, which, by the way, is also uh, interesting. Where why they are widely ignored in many academic studies uh, because. Uh, 
uh, uh, uh, scholars like to compare uh, similar cases. Right. Um, and um, so the U.S. is quite different. Uh, but then, of course, we have, uh, I mean, I was talking about the 58% of countries that did not win a medal at the last Summer Olympic Games. at the 66% of countries that did not win a medal at the last Winter Olympics. So, yes, many countries uh, uh, fail to implement uh, uh, policies uh, such as focusing on uh, specific sports, such as having a centralized institution that is managing the sports sector, and um, those countries are not competitive competitive with the Australias, Norways, UKs, Germanys, Japans, and Chinas. Yeah, the United States, since you bring it up, does stick out as an outlier. And I think for our non-American listeners um, or people who haven't lived in the United States, it would be um, interesting maybe if you take a minute or two to explain is the United States a model that just nobody else can copy? Is it just so unique or strange? Uh, is it is it a factor of having such a higher GDP and a big population? Uh, this long historical tradition of school sports. Um, what is it that makes the United States successful in the Olympic Games that maybe um, other country that allows it to to not follow this wise formula? Maybe. I think um, the, um, uh, this needs to be explained in the context of the Cold War. So the United States wanted to prove that it's different than the uh, East European countries where there is heavy state involvement into the sports sector. So they did not introduce a national institution for the promotion of sport. They did not dedicate a government department for the promotion of sport. This does not mean that the state is absent in the United States. It's just more hidden. Um, we have in, in, in uh, uh, many uh, states uh, uh, in the U.S., uh, a best-paid uh, public um, employer is a sport coach at a college. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, public uh, colleges uh, have very advanced sporting infrastructure. And uh, as I said before, the uh, 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 National Olympic Committee of the United States uh, uh, does not have to tax the sponsorship money uh, it receives. So the uh, U.S. Olympic Committee is acting a little bit like uh, governments uh, or national sport institutions are doing in other countries by making decisions such as how to distribute uh, its revenue. And this is also... uh, based on success. So it's not that in the U.S. Uh, all the sports get similar funding. It's follow, following the global pattern of giving priority to those sports who promise more success than others. So, for example, swimming would receive much more money than table tennis. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I did my undergraduate work at Ohio State. So now when I teach my students about sports history, I, I give them a little... Um, mini lecture on college sports in the United States and Australian students are, are typically um, surprised to know that Ohio State has a stadium that seats 105,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, It is a very unusual situation. One other thing that the United States has done, though, that I think explains some of its success is, is your W, right? 
So what is the role of investing in women's sports? And is this maybe the most important of your, of your, of your things for countries that want to see more success now? Yes, I think um, the U.S. has always been very good in uh, promoting uh, women's sports. But uh, we can also see that uh, China, who made the strategic decision in the 1980s to open up to the world and related to sports to become a global sports superpower, which they managed to do so. And one major explanation is that the majority of medals China has won is in women's sports. So China was very clever. And if we see the region where, where I'm living and working, the Middle East, uh, Lebanon is doing relatively well in promoting women, but other countries in the region uh, don't do. And uh, Iran, for example, just won the first uh, woman medal at the last Olympic Games. It had, won, it had won before in the history of the Olympic Games 60 medals, but all by men. So imagine if they would have promoted women like they promoted men they would not have only won 60 medals, they might have won 120 or 130 medals. So they would have a completely different rank in the all-time uh, medal ranking. Uh, we have a country such as uh, Saudi Arabia or Qatar, which uh, sent women for the very first time to the Olympic Games in 2012 in London. Imagine Qatar is participating in the uh, Summer Olympic Games since 1984. Be not before 2012, they would send women. So, and the future of the Olympic Games, I'm convinced there will be much more mixed gender competition. So countries that do not promote women, they will further fall behind in success. Yeah, it seems to me, given that many countries don't invest well, if at all, in women's sports, given that many um, women's sports are not available all the way all around the world, um, because of these geographic conditions, because of ideological or cultural conditions. If a country wants to be successful in the games or achieve more success, maybe investing in women is the way to go about it. Um, in certain yeah, certainly it's more rational because, uh, I mean, overall, there are many sports where uh, um, the female version is uh, less popular than the men version. So, <laughs> so economists might argue it's more cost-efficient to invest into women's and men's sports because a success might be achieved easier in many sports where you have lower participation rates in women's sports than in men's sports. Yeah, I, I, um, it, not to mention that it's probably just the right thing to do. <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. of course. And I always say... Yeah, as you, uh, you emphasize that. Okay. In the Middle East, I'm emphasizing this in the book, as you know, yeah. please, and I'm always saying to everybody, sport is a human right and nobody should be excluded from it. So I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask to see how they um, affect some of the conclusions that you draw here. And then I want to talk to you about um, what you're currently working on. But one of the things that I was reading, uh, thinking about when I was reading this book is is um, this idea of sports superpower dumb? And I was also thinking about how this might be affected in some ways, some strong ways, by individual athletes. You mentioned Michael Phelps already in the interview, and I was thinking about Michael Phelps. Uh, and and America's won so many swimming medals in the past. Um, in the past four games, summer games, but 
Michael Phelps has been so instrumental in 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 each of those medals. It seems like, uh, at least on the men's side, how important in some areas, whether it's um, sprinting, uh, so uh, Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps in the pool, are these kind of super athletes? Are they? Do they? Do they? change the numbers in some way yeah i mean we have sports where athletes can compete in more than one competition at the games and if you have a super athlete he can deliver up to eight medals uh, as an extreme case with michael phelps for a country in a competition we have uh, we have um uh, we have cases of uh, um cross-country uh, 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 athletes from Norway, which also won like numerous medals uh, uh, for their country. So it's rational for countries to, if you have uh, a gifted athlete to uh, in individual competitions uh, where participation in several events is possible, it's, it's rational from uh, a, a government point of view to invest into these athletes. The other thing I was thinking of that I wondered if it, it uh, on a macro level was playing a, a factor is longevity in the games. It seems like countries that have competed for longer have done more to shape the games in the way that suits them. Um, when we look at the Winter Olympics, for example, most of the countries in the whole world don't compete in any of those sports, but yet yeah. they all count the same as as a medal in track and field, for example. Um, so I wondered if longevity wasn't a factor that this is that the games are still in some ways um, very eurocentric. They are particularly the Winter Olympics. I mean, now in Pyongyang we had 92 countries participating, but uh, one third of them was just sending one or two athletes, and these athletes are often diaspora athletes, so they might represent uh, Nigeria, for example, but uh, have never lived there. So, yes, and uh, three-quarter of the medals at Winter Olympics are won by European countries, and the others are like the United States, Canada, uh, China, Japan, South Korea. So, yes, the Winter Olympics are quite Eurocentric. So is there a possibility for de-Eurocentricizing the Games? Can we, can we make the Games more global, or is the colonial past just made that impossible because European games are global games now. Yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, uh, um, there are two ways. One is, of course, countries can do what I uh, described in the book as a pattern in sport policies around the world. They can specialize on something. And I mean, the Netherlands, which are good in speed skating, uh, show that even if you don't have mountains in the country, you can even win uh, a medal in the Winter Olympics if you like strategically focus on specific sports and build an infrastructure for them. But also, um, I mean, uh, one should question in general like um, which sports are uh, admitted to the Olympic program. For example, I, I hardly understand why a sport like chess is not uh, uh, admitted to the Olympic program. It could be become of the Winter Olympics, for example, and it's much more globally spread than a sport such as luge, which is, uh, as I said, uh, practiced by 6,000 people in the country that dominates Germany. So, yes, there should be also a critical discussion on which sports are admitted, and it seems uh, uh, um, 
this is uh, mainly uh, uh, for the pleasure of like the most advanced countries in the world. It's not rational. I mean, I, as a German, I'm happy about every luge medal in my country wins, <laughs> but the truth is nobody cares about luge in the world. So uh, it should be not part of the Olympic program. Uh, other sports such as chess much more deserve to become part of the Olympic program. And then we might have, although chess, men chess is currently dominated by a Norwegian, we might have uh, and somebody from India, for example, who, who wins a medal in, in chess. Uh, as a as a former competitive chess player, I have to agree with you. And I uh, do. I would point out a, uh, just a small note that it was chess was on the program of the Barcelona People's Olympiad. If it had gone forward, they would have had chess as one of their sports. Uh -huh. um, so, Daniel, can you tell us what you're currently working on? So after everybody finishes reading success and failure, uh, they can look forward to the next per project. Yes, so I became very much interested in sport and nationalism and citizenship issues. Uh, I wrote two papers and have almost finished a third one. The first paper was specifically dealing with the uh, um, so Lebanese Rugby League national men's team, uh, which uh, qualified for the last World Cup, even became uh, uh, made it to the uh, uh, quarterfinal. And it was my, mainly comprised of uh, Australians, mm -hmm. of Lebanese heritage. So I was interested in like uh, athletes with dual nationality who make strategic choices of which country they represent. And this is just one out of many examples. We had at the FIFA World Cup, we had uh, an Algerian team, which was mainly comprised of uh, French players with Algerian heritage. Then a second topic um, uh, I became interested in was naturalizations in sport. And I uh, just uh, published with my uh, Turkish colleague, Shem uh, Tinas, uh, a paper on naturalizations uh, uh, in uh, a comparative analysis of Qatar and Turkey. And now I'm working on a paper on the eligibility criteria in uh, both codes of rugby, rugby league and rugby union. Uh, one of the few sports that allows non-nationals to be in a national team. So one can play for Germany, for example, in the German rugby team without German citizenship if one has can prove residence over a certain number of years or heritage like German parents or grandparents. So this I find uh, quite interesting and um, maybe also a, a model for other sports to follow. And yeah, so in these, uh, I want to continue working on like issues in the field of sport, nationality, uh, citizenship um, in the years to come. Well, thank you very much, Daniel, for joining us. I've been speaking with Daniel Reiche, the author of Success and Failure of Countries at the Olympic Games, uh, which was published by Rutledge Press. And professor at American University of Beirut. Thank you so much for joining me today, Daniel. Thank you, Keith. And thank you all for listening. This has been New Books in Sports.